of you to be welcome to participate in that and be a part of that and to celebrate with her. And um, yeah, I think that's it for announcements. So um, let's dive into this. So I'm going to recap really quickly, like the last eight weeks. We have been <laughs> working through the season of Lent, which is the six-week season that leads up to Easter. And then, uh, believe it or not, Easter is not just one day where we hunt for eggs and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It's actually a 50-day season called Eastertide. So we have been working through uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament using what we call a cruciform lens. Uh, we are looking at all of Scripture, all of human history, all of current life and future life through the cruciform lens. Um, what that is is a narrative arc uh, of human history, and we believe the peak of the ark is Christ hanging on the cross. And that is the way that the Bible and human history and human um, current events and human future is meant to be discerned and understood. That it is what we look through for all of life to make more sense and for heaven to come to earth. And so we've, we did that in the Old Testament during the season of Lent, and now we're doing it through the resurrection season of after the crucifixion, how, what kind of an impact does viewing scripture and viewing uh, the book of like Acts and Romans and Ephesians and like the effect of the cross and the resurrection and now how does that affect what we're doing? And a few conclusions that we are investigating or even you could say have concluded with. Uh, one thing we talked about is that it's dangerous to shrink that which shouldn't be shrunk. Meaning we, a lot of times we try to sum up um, Christianity and our faith and what, would, what I could call bumper sticker Christianity, like these little pithy sayings that sound good, but they reduce the gospel to and, and it's so much that it actually warps the breadth and the depth of, of the gospel. And the cross has a tendency to be shrunk, uh, to Christ died on the sins to pay our debt so that we can go to heaven. There are aspects of that that are true but that really reduces what the gospel is. So it's dangerous to shrink that which shouldn't be shrunk. So instead of shrinking that down to one Sunday, we're spending five or six Sundays talking about the resurrection and really what the impact of that is. One of the impacts is that holiness is a big deal. We are called to be image bearers, meaning we are, ref we are reflectors of Christ's truth and grace into the world. And the cross and the resurrection is not about being rescued from earth so that we get to go to heaven someday. It's about living now as a royal priesthood. That's the word that uses, uh, that John in the book of Revelation uses to describe us now that we're following Christ. Is you are priestesses and priests in the holy order of following Jesus. And the people uh, that stand at the intersection of heaven and earth. And it's not, uh, it's not just a part-time gig. It is a vocation. It is a calling. It is, um, you are missionaries, you are ministers, whatever, you, and the Bible says priests, so whatever word you want to use, it is something that is meant to permeate every second of our day, every fiber of our being, no matter where we at, we can't compartmentalize it. What corrupts that vocation, we talked about this last week, the fundamental problem that the cross and the resurrection solves is not sin, it's idolatry. Uh, when we, we, like we took a look at Romans and the fact that what we see is that the root of all sin is actually idolatry. So think of, sin, think of idolatry as a root. Sin is the tree that you visibly see springing up out of the ground. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than Christ. And N.T. Wright said, um, our idols are not, are not inherently evil. 
We just make them evil by, by putting them on equal ground or above Jesus Christ. And they stop being demons when they stop being gods. So it's not about demonizing things. It's about worshiping things properly. And our, our object of worship is simply Jesus. So not only do we need to stop worshiping idols, if we are worshiping them, we need to start worshiping Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us need to renew that commitment uh, and that focus. Uh, and this is another aspect of the resurrection guides us to. It's the proper worship of the proper king. So we're going to start with John 4. We can look at a lot of verses about wor- what worship is. This one is particularly succinct and, and potent and I think really relatable. So John 4, I'm going to read verses 21 through 24. This is a small snippet of the story of the woman at the well. Jesus and his disciples are on their way somewhere. They cut through Samaria. Uh, The disciples go into town, I think, to get something to eat. Uh, The woman is at the well getting water. Jesus starts having an interaction with the Samaritan woman, uh, which in and of itself violates all kinds of um, uh, Jewish law and ceremonial law and social law which Jesus has a tendency to do. So that's the context. They're having this conversation, and we pick it up in verse 21. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true Worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So I want to unpack that just a bit. The Samaritans believed that Moses commissioned an altar on this mountain called Mount Gerizim. And when he refers to the first, in verse 21, he says something about you worship on this mountain. He's talking about that mountain. He's saying, look, you think this is what happened and this is where you're supposed to worship. And they had this system in place in justifying their um, worship system of coming to that mountain. Then Jesus sets Jews and Samaritans in stark contrast. He associates himself with the Jews saying, there is a right and wrong here. All right, there, there, is, there are systems of worship that are off and there is one that is on and I'm part of the one that's on and, that, and I'm introducing that to you right now. And the Samaritans, for example, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as God's word. So what's called the Pentateuch. They did not, they ignored or did not take seriously the rest of the Old Testament. They discarded it. We now have the Holy Spirit. So worship is now holistic and it's both internal and external. That's what Jesus is talking about, spirit and truth. So it is, it's more pervasive, it's bigger, it's broader, it's deeper than what the Samaritans knew at that point. It is both individual and communal. So it it encompasses everything. Um, He's basically saying you no longer embrace only partial truth and you no longer have to go to a specific place to worship and experience God. What Jesus does is good for everyone at every time and in every place. And the woman is trying to understand Jesus through her worldview, through her plausibility structure that she's known all of her life. Jesus was removing her from that and giving her a completely new and fresh perspective of God. So what the Samaritans did was an incomplete form of worship. Jesus was simultaneously expanding worship and truth while deepening it at the same time. And worship is not just external rule following, and it's not just about sacrifice making. 
God's presence is now bigger than just a temple or a synagogue or a specific spot on a mountain or a, a certain day of the week, which is how we kind of think of it in American culture, that church happens on Sunday, that church is a location. Not the case. It is a, an, a, a constant state of worship. Last week I talked about Satan's biggest target is not to get us, he doesn't need us to get to uh, hate Christ. He just needs us to find an object or uh, something that we grasp hold of and put it on equal level with Jesus. That's idolatry. He's like, if I can just get you to focus your attention a little off of him, I win. That's it. Focusing on something else. And that's what the, that's what the cross and the resurrection exposed and conquered. Satan has other methods of attack. One being he wants to minimize the presence of God. If he can get us to revert back to old ways of worship that were incomplete, it's a victory for him. And this is still happening. He's still finding ways to trick us into compartmentalizing Christ or distorting our viewpoint of him. So what he likes to do is he likes to pull Christ into current worldviews, assumptions, and what you might say plausibility structures. Uh, The reigning plausibility structures in the Western world over the last few hundred years are those of the Enlightenment, like science, reason, education, career, money, power. These are what we think of when we come to think of how to define and how to influence reality. These these are, are the instincts that we have developed as human beings, and most, if not all of us, participate in all of those. Like they are We are raised in them, they're around us, we participate in those systems every day. None of those systems in and of themselves are inherently evil. Like I listed off science is an evil, reason's not, education's not, money's not, power, yeah. So one out of what, seven. Career, not evil. Then we've added even more to the equation. Uh, Over the last 50 to 75 years, there's been, probably longer than that, there's been the rise of the the individual, of the self, uh, in an even more rapid manner, um, like the rise of the nuclear family. If you notice one of the constant debates among the right or the left, it's about what the definition of family is. It's their idol. It's their way of, if we get this, everything's going to be better. They're worshiping that, and both sides are guilty of it. It's the rise of self. The nuclear family is a new invention. This is not something that historically has defined reality. Uh, We're reading our worldview into scripture. That's what's consistently happening. There's an obsession with personal rights and personal freedoms, having control over our own destiny. We take all of this that we've been raising, it's like this giant box of enlightenment thinking and instincts, and we uh, we, none of them evil, but Satan has made them evil evil because he's using these as filters for reading scripture, for identifying who Jesus is and what he means. And the resurrection, what the resurrection is doing is pulling us out of that so that we view things through, not through instincts, experiences, science, reason, money, power, career, self. We view the resurrection through a cruciform lens. It's an entirely new lens. It's not just parts of a new lens. Leslie Newbegin, he calls the resurrection a boundary event at the point where, as cosmologists tell us, the laws of physics cease to apply. No offense, Stephen. It's the beginning of a new creation, as mysterious to human reason as the creation itself. What, if you, anybody read these, uh, like, old apologetics books? Anybody heard of, like, Josh McDowell or um, Ravi Zacharias? These are, like, 
I'm, I'm really going nerdy evangelical culture here. Um, there's a lot of books out that defend Christianity, and the mistake they make, the, the common flaw, is they defend Christianity in the, the box of enlightenment thinking. We're, as, if, we're, as if our faith is reasonable. As if it has this ability to be measured by science and the human brain. It is not meant to do that. Our faith is completely unreasonable. We believe a man rose from the dead. Let's acknowledge the weirdness of that and live into the reality of what he's actually saying there. So we can't use this box to define or filter the resurrection. We just need to own it and say, it's weird, but you should try it. Try living into this story and see what it does. Um, Newbegin goes on to say, one does not, I, I, this is pretty much what I just said, but one does not defend this new perspective by trying to demonstrate its compatibility with the old. One challenges the old with the demand and the offer of a death and a new birth. What I've just described to you, like this box, let's think of all those things that we all have. You know, all of us have money, maybe it's just a little bit. Some, you know, careers, education. We like studying, you know, the, the way things work with science and reason, um, enlightenment thinking. We all care about ourselves. We do. So we all have that box. What that box is is privilege. And I think we, like, think of privilege as, like, a sliding scale. It's like, no. Pretty much anybody that's been born in, into a first world type of a situation, that's privilege. If you have these, time, these kind of thoughts and abilities or achievements, you have privilege. It's important to note that the people who, respond, uh, who responded to the gospel story in Scripture, it was the poor and the marginalized. The people of privilege hated Jesus. They viewed him as a rival king. He is. He is, a com- he is not part of this structure. He is a completely new reality with a completely different kingdom. And he is taking a sledgehammer to anything that we have developed over here. So he is a rival king, and that's why the Roman and the Jewish elite hated him. It's why they killed him. They, didn't, they, they saw him as a rival. They didn't want to give up their idols of control and power and money because those existed in the ancient world as well. And the cross and the resurrection pulls us out of that. It's why believing he actually rose from the dead is a critical part of our faith. It's essential. Um, he's no longer our rival. He's our king, and we submit everything to him our position, our privilege, our worldviews, our assumptions, our instincts, our plausibility structures, they all go away in this kingdom. We submit everything to him. So going back to the woman at the well, trying to understand Christ through her Samaritan worldview, we need to stop trying to understand Christ through our enlightened, Western, privileged worldview. It doesn't work. In fact, it actually inhibits our understanding of what truth is and worship really is in the kingdom. <clears throat> so let me give you a broad example um, of, of this playing out. In a free and enlightened society, violence is still prevalent. I mean, the tw- most historians agree that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. But I'm not going to go into physical violence. In a pluralistic, privileged society, words are the weapon of choice. All right, especially in the age of social media. Everybody feels safe dropping verbal bombs against each other from the comfort of their bedroom on their keyboard when they don't have to look the person in the eye. So the verbal violence, there's lots of examples, but one that I run into routinely, um, particularly on social media, and even there are, I've had personal conversations. I had one of these at Christmas time where I was just sitting down eating a donut, and I got the bomb, the verbal bomb of, 
liberal thrown at me. It's like, it's like the new scarlet letter. Boom, you're a liberal. Or boom, you're a conservative. Those are the two verbal, violent words. If you get labeled with one of those, the reason that we throw, and I say we, I, I try not to use those words or to participate in that, but the, the people who throw those words around, what they're doing with words is they're, 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 those are the nails they're using to crucify you to a different cross. They are going to dismiss whatever you say because they have labeled you a liberal or conservative. Even if what you're saying is gospel truth. This happens routinely in my life. I will say something. I don't have the gospel nailed. I'll get to that here in a little bit. But I'm like, I'm convinced this is true. If if I'm a Christian, and this is is the worldview Christians subscribe to, I'll present this, and I will be labeled a liberal or conservative, uh, and that, that gospel truth will be dismissed. And because of the flaw is that people are trapped in this box of, of enlightenment thinking. They can only think through that filter. They're not thinking through the filter of the cross. So that's a, just one example um, of how we've got, you know, if, if the source of gospel truth is labeled as liberal or conservative, it can be easily dispatched and dismissed by the crowds of zealots that have formed around partisan politics. Um, people are filtering the gospel through their worldview rather than laying down their idols and allowing Christ to lead them into a new and probably uncomfortable reality because it doesn't feel good. Derek Vreeland kind of continuing this. I'll get to this quote in a second. The cross and the resurrection were the two main methods of Jesus overthrowing these enslaving powers. The season in which he did it also carries special significance. So I want to talk about the season of Passover and how it plays into the resurrection briefly. Derek Vreeland says, Jesus chose Passover for this final proclamation of God's coming kingdom because the breaking in of God's kingdom implied the overthrow of enslaving power. So what's Passover? We're not going to go into a, an intense deep dive in the Old Testament. You can check it out on Wikipedia later. Uh, the major, it, the Passover is the major Jewish spring festival that commemorates the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt. Uh, it's like a seven or eight day, maybe longer, I can't remember, seven or eight day celebration. Um, that it, it, the story is told in the Bible in the book of Exodus, if you want to check it out. On the first night of Passover, the celebration started with a meal, and I think the meal is called a cedar meal, S-E-D-E-R. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it starts with this meal on the first night. The Last Supper, like communion, the Eucharist that we just celebrated, that was the Passover meal. So it wasn't just Jesus and the disciples having a random dinner together. Jesus picked that night to have that specific meal. N.T. Wright says, when Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, a model, a metaphor, or any such thing. He gave them a meal. So it carries powerful significance. Passover meal is what transformed, what, what he did is that the Jews would celebrate this holiday every year, Passover, and they would use this holiday to look back to human history at the liberation that happened thousands of years ago. And what Jesus did at Passover was he, he changed the lens. It's like no longer will you look at Passover as a reminder of the liberation from Israelites from the Egyptians. Now you will remember it as the liberation of you from satanic forces. And he shifted the focus to the cross. That's the cruciform lens. And so it completely changed. 
it extended, it, uh, it evolved, whatever you want to call it. It was a new creation, a new focus, a new filter at Passover now. Futuristic. The implications of a cruciform lens are massive, and we've explored that over the last few months during Lent and Eastertide. We cannot baptize Christ into our worldview. We are baptized out of that worldview into a new kingdom reality, into heaven on earth. And to be completely honest, I, I often find myself wondering how Christ is so patient with us. Um, how, he, um, how he manages to continually love us despite the competition he has and our love and our affection with stuff other than him. Because as a pastor, it pisses me off. I'm like, I, I feel like I'm competing with, and I can fill in all these blanks that I feel like I'm competing with. And that goes for me too, because I, I compete with my, um, my self-absorption quite a bit. That, there's a constant battle there of me trying to think outside of myself. But it frustrates me to have to compete against uh, a, this worldview and these power structures that exist that Christ is actually trying to remove and draw us out of. Um, so the question we got to ask ourselves, um, well, before we ask, before I close with the questions, there's, there's one more quote, um, because it's important, um, you know, kind of going back to some of the power structures that exist, there's a large chunk of Christianity in the U.S. that basically claims we've got truth figured out. They've developed all these systematic theologies and these pithy phrases and these essentials. Like, you go on any church website and you look at their beliefs, what they're announcing when they have those belief statements is, we got to figure it out. This is, this is what we know for sure, 100%. No, you don't. That's why we don't have a belief statement on Restore's website. We don't. The cross and the resurrection is a starting point for truth. We are on the journey. God has not re- revealed all the cards. We aren't him. We don't know how the Holy Spirit works all the time. He's a mystery. And Newbegin says, being a Christian doesn't mean to be the possessors of all truth. It means to be placed on the path by following which we are led toward the truth. There is indeed a proper place for agnosticism in the Christian life. There is a true sense in which we are with others, seekers after the truth. This tradition and theology has always insisted on the fact that no human image or concept can grasp the full reality of God. So when we look, when we talk about scripture, we don't speak with arrogance or know-it-allness because we don't know it all we are on the starting point of truth that's what the resurrection did the question the, the the important part that we have to accept is jesus died on the cross and we believe that he rose from the dead that is an essential part of christianity because that's what leads us to a cruciform lens and to him being on the throne of our lives if he's there then the question is have we asked ourselves today or recently do we believe in this truth, and are we responding to it? So if you've been through a discipleship huddle, you know that. What's God saying to you? How are you responding to it? That is a question we ask ourselves constantly. Have we paused on the journey? Maybe you've hit the pause button because you get a little distracted, a little off, a little bored. I don't know. But you got to ask yourself, have I paused on the journey into this new reality, into this heaven on earth, in order to pursue other interests or to the point of maybe even worshiping something other than Christ? Or have we paused on the journey because the breadth and the depth of the resurrection conflicts with our enlightened worldview? We have to ask ourselves these tough questions. What's keeping us from 
pursuing Jesus into this new reality. And, you know, we got to ask ourselves, am I experiencing tension in my faith right now? If you are, you need to explore that because God is probably trying to lead you deeper into his kingdom and there's something within you that's resistant to it. So let's close by praying. Um, I'm going to pray that we would recognize the gospel truth and that we would continue to respond to it. Lord, I thank you for the resurrection. Um, I thank you for that we have the, uh, um, the interest and the curiosity to explore the depth of it, that we don't just take our faith at surface level or um, that we allow it to be spoon-fed to us. God, I pray that we would be people that would ask tough questions, that would... Um, that would engage the tension we experience in our spirituality and our connection with you. Lord, I pray that we would be people that would, uh, I pray for everybody here, that we would put you on the throne. If we haven't already, or if we've taken you off for a bit.